been having a series this summer about missions. We've had different missionaries come in and visit. Next week, our friends from Venezuela will be here. But today, we have this Sunday where I wanted to talk about what our city is like. You know, what's it like to care about Cincinnati? And if there's anyone who cares deeply, and like the person who I know who loves this city the most, it is my husband, Steve. So I wanted him to share his heart for this city. He has grown up here. When we got married, I stuck around here, and this city has become my city too. But he has such a heart and passion that Steve's going to share with us today about being the church in the city. Hey, it's good to be here. Can you all hear me okay? Because we want to leave the air conditioning on because it's very hot today. So I'm going to talk loud, which doesn't mean that I am talking intensely, but there is always nuances there. So when I sound, you know, there's that point where sometimes I'm talking to my daughter and it's like, well, you're angry. And I'm like, I'm not angry. I'm just intentional. And when I talk that way, sometimes it's rough. So stick with me. Are we friends? We're in a good spot this morning and we'll stay cool and I'll deal with the subject matter, it'll be good. So most of you know me, some of you don't, but Kelly and I started the church, actually it was 16 years ago next month that we moved into the city and down the street in a building that is now a house. We started, we tried to get that building, but I think it's a blessing that we didn't in some ways because it would have just changed the nature of what we do and the work we have. But we met there and we've met in different locations, but we've been in the city for the longest time. So even though Kelly is the lead minister, at that time I was the lead minister, and this church was a labor of this love that we had a passion for the city. And just to let you know, uh, before that, all but seven years of my Christian walk has taken place within church in the city. So when I look back at that now, where I'm like, that's almost 40 years of living life in the city as a, as a person of God. This is why when Kelly talks about my passion for the city, my passion for what Jesus is doing in the city, I always want to have the opportunity to talk about that. Now, I am an elder at this church, too, so I'm one of the leaders. And as a result, sometimes I'm like, okay, where do I get the opportunity to speak into it? And for some reason, Kelly doesn't want to be speaking as much anymore, and I don't know if it's just because I'm supposed to be the eye candy. I don't know if it's because she's worried about what I will say. But really today, I want us to jump into, you know, Kelly gave me this, the topic of the city and how we in the church move in the city, and I just really felt this moving to be able to maneuver and navigate through what is going to be a challenging topic in relation to that. So when we come into this, I always ask for grace. I ask that you give me grace because when somebody says things in front of other people from the stage, sometimes there's miscommunication. Sometimes there's words that we take different. But I want you to know that this is born out of thought and love and uh, experience that I think is hopefully going to be helpful for us as we grapple with what does it mean for me, for you, to be people of faith in the midst of the city. And I'm going to start with that with something that happened this week. And I'm going to start an ambiguity because I think it's a place of trust. I always start an ambiguity and an intentionality. So don't believe that as I'm trying to be, what do I want to say, non-specific here, that it is fear, but it is actually me trying to do well by everything involved. But this week there was a little bit of a hubbub in the city because one of the churches in the city had a conversation in their church 
that was publicized, that was put out for people, and that caused consternation, controversy, and for a lot of people, pain. And when that happens, because we are people of faith in the city, it affects virtually every church that I know doing ministry in the city have been impacted by this. So if you're like, I have no idea what Steve's talking about, talk in the foyer afterwards, you can get your caught up or go Google something and sit, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out your own. So I'm going to start ambiguity, like I said, but we're going to end here. And you're like, Steve, why not be specific? And that is because... I try not to worry as much about what other churches are doing because that is not the nature of how God will judge me. And you can look at the scriptures. There's a text in the book of James. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Teachers will be judged harshly because of what they teach. So I cannot impact what other people teach, but I very sure will can be responsible for what I teach and say and where we are at as a church. So it's not a punt on this, because here's the issue, is that I used to teach in seminary. I have former students who are actually ministering at this church that had controversy. And at the same time, I found out this week, I have former students who are actually organizing the protests against the church doing this. So maybe it's just my fault, and I suck at teaching. But because of this, and because of the love of people, I don't want to get into this idea of calling out people's name because that, I think, misses the point. What I hate, and if you know me, what I hate is when people try to say, this is how a conversation has to go and you have to adhere to it. And especially when it comes to issues of theology, I don't buy in. So what I want us to do is navigate what it means beyond, behind the scenes. Because we focus so much on fruits, we don't get to the roots. And I'm going to hopefully navigate us through a conversation today that helps us land here. Okay, so did you like that for ambiguous introduction? I think it was good. Susan, am I tracking? Does it work out okay? She's like, I will withhold judgment on you until you're in, and I appreciate about that, that about you, because we have that relationship. So later you can let me know, or we'll just hand you a microphone, and you can correct me as it comes in. So I want to split this into three different conversations. And the first one, and it's all under, and I forget my slides here, so I'm trying to stick free of notes, which is always good, right, Kelly? is this idea of Christ and culture, okay? Because that is the prevailing issue of which we're grappling with. How does Jesus engage in the world? I've been influenced much by this from a writings from a theologian who wrote a book in 1951. His name is Richard Niebuhr, and Richard and Reinhold Niebuhr were theologian brothers. Like, what kind of house do you have to be raised in where, like, it was just not a fun house, I guess. But either way, the thing I appreciate about Richard is he took this idea of what does it mean for Jesus to exist in culture. And he came up with three different ways that Christ either exists of the culture. That means that everything is Jesus. Jesus is everything. The way that I summarize it is it's all good in the hood, right? Like, all, everything's great. It's all Jesus, hooray, let's have a parade. That's, that's what I call immersion, right? When we're just saying, it doesn't matter, God loves everybody, everything is love, it's all good, do whatever you want, that makes life happy, okay? That's, that's Christ of culture. Christ against culture would be your basic fundamentalist view, right? Like, like Jesus is against everything. Don't drink or chew or go with girls or guys who do, right? Like this... This idea that everything in the culture is bad, just stay away from it, wear toxic suits, you know, and 
you know, I don't know how that works out with masking. I have no idea how it works out. But either way, it's just like we're going to separate from culture completely. And what Niebuhr does is try to say, really, the best way to express what the scriptures say is that Christ exists above culture. But can you see where the dilemma comes in here? Is this idea that if Christ exists above culture, then there's so much of it, we have to like, you know, that, that garbled gook of cords behind your television that you know need to be organized but never are. Why don't you do that? Because it takes time. And you're like, look, nobody sees it, nobody gives a rip, it's just going to be behind the TV. When we talk about Christ being above culture, that means we have to go behind the TV, unplug cords, you know, just do all of this work that is hard. And I'm just going to tell you, my, one of my theological treatises is that people hate things that are hard. And because of that, we don't want to deal with it, which is why we want to simplify conversations. And by the way, Richard's brother, Reinhold, uh, it was one of the things that I was just watching in a Billy Graham documentary earlier. He hated Billy Graham, not because of who Billy Graham was, but he's like, look, he's taking a very complex topic and oversimplifying it. And because of that, people can get confused. And I'm not saying that Billy Graham was wrong because I love me some Billy. But at the same time, Reinhold, Richard's brother, was true. It's the idea that, friends, to follow Jesus is a complex mess of cords behind the TV. And Eric, you might be impressed. I didn't come with that illustration. It was the first thing that came to my mind. And I think that's the Holy Spirit because that's some brilliant stuff. So somebody write that down. So this is why we're saying, if this is the aspect of how does Jesus operate within the midst of culture, what we need to then figure out is what does culture in the city look like? What does culture in the city look like? Now, the reason I bring this up, and because for many of us in this room, maybe you're like me and spent most of your life in the city, maybe you're not and have lived aspects of your life in suburbia, but this is incredibly important for us to acknowledge because generally in American suburbia, the differences between culture and church are negligible. Like, usually there is congruency, there is matching between how your church believes and how the people in the burbs believe. And it makes then your existence easier, which is why generally we see larger churches in suburban areas. Because the church is able to exist and not have to speak into the culture harshly. And if it does speak into the culture, it's able to do it plainly in a scriptural way that just allows them to bang, 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 and berate. When you live in the city, you are not afforded that. So you have to figure out what is the culture of the city. So after spending most of my life in this city, most of my church life in the city, I like to boil down the culture of the city into three things. Now, again, giving up to Reinhold Niebuhr, that's an oversimplification, but we only have so much time today. You want to be the Baptist to lunch? I want to help you. So just stick with me and just let it be these three and nothing more. Okay? The first issue of the city is the issue of race. Is the issue of race. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of the reasons why in over the last summer, in all of the movement within the Black Lives Matter conversation, one of the reasons that people have revolted against that and said, we're talking too much about this issue, is because they've lived in spaces where they haven't had to deal with it. And that because they don't believe that it's part of their life, they're like, look, this is irrelevant. <laughs> but 16 years ago, our family moved into this community, which is more than 60% African American. So whereas I know people who don't see people of color in their lives daily, for us it is an absolute way of life. And you acknowledge then that in the city, 
race is an important issue that must be addressed. It is inescapable. Here in Walnut Hills, I always talk about this, over by the Cadillac dealership, there was a seminary, a place where ministers are trained. It was called Lane Seminary. And it was started in Cincinnati after the Revolutionary War in order to train up good, faithful ministers in the West. So at that time, Cincinnati was the West. It's not the West anymore. It's the Midwest. But this idea that we need ministers to go out to all these new cities that can faithfully teach Jesus because they can't get to a good seminary on the East Coast. But here's the interesting thing. At that time, before the Civil War in Cincinnati, race was an incredibly important aspect of life. Even though Cincinnati did not have legal slavery, the city grew because of the industry of slave labor just across from the river. And as such, even though people in the north were like, well, it's not really a good thing, they didn't want to speak too vociferously about it because it would have cost them their very way of life. So they tended to shut up. This happened at Lane Seminary because there were some abolitionist students who said, we need to talk about the issue of slavery. And Lyman Beecher, picture the seminary president right here, who, by the way, when he came to Cincinnati, was the most famous preacher in the United States. He was in Boston and said, I'm going to move my family to Cincinnati to be president of the seminary. He thought it was all going to be like, look at me, I'm going to stand up for Jesus and do great things. And then the issue of race came to the forefront. And he's like, what do I do? And again, it wasn't that he affirmed slavery, but he didn't want that to become an issue. He didn't want race to become an issue, so he punted. And when he punted, the seminary just fell apart, completely fell apart. But the one legacy of that, which, again, you might see this if you, under, you know the name, it's ironic, is that his daughter married a seminary professor, and after having a rough time here, I had a child die at a young age, Harriet Beecher Stowe moved up to Maine, but took all the experiences that she had in Cincinnati and wrote the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, which really instigated the beginning of the Civil War. So it's interesting that in not wanting to deal with the topic of race, Lyman Beecher didn't know that it came to his own household and his daughter ended up becoming one of the most seminal characters in the 19th century speaking about issues of race. And then ever since then, our neighborhood, Walnut Hills here, has actually grappled with it because this was a site of the first independent African-American community where they actually could own houses. That was one of the interesting things about the seminary is that it was the one place where ownership of the land wasn't kept away from African-Americans. So the first viable black-owned community in the city was over here by the Jiminetti Bakery Company over by the Cadillac dealership. And that is actually why one of the best schools in the city was Frederick Douglass School here. And it had some of the premier education educators in the city. And yet when we were like, you know what, we need to bring all this into a public school system, that school went from top to bottom. Because once it became public schools, we sapped all the resources about this. Now, preaching a little to the choir, because I think here we understand these ideas of institutions that suffer from the systematic sin of racism. I bring this up to set something up later, but it's important to understand race. I follow quickly to resources. And Kelly, you're running the slide. I want to talk about resources quickly because for us to live in this community for 16 years, it has been a long march to understand resources. Because when we moved in, there were dilapidated places that we were like, what is ever going to be have that become of these places? where there was investment in. So this old dilapidated building became Fireside Pizza, which was one of the first restaurants down here, right? Maybe you've, you've dined there. Other buildings that have changed over time have been uh, at the corner. This used to be the, the Paramount building. 
And I don't know if you can see this in an old picture. Will's pawn shop sat there. Will had a couple locations, but his best location was in Walnut Hills because people loved the pawns stolen stuff. And Will was like, you know, see no evil, hear no evil. You know, like he was just like, I'll take it. But then his kids were kind of like, you know what? The pawn business isn't for us. Sold the building. It sat, it sat vacant for the longest time. But now one of the, our, our favorite breweries in town, Esoteric Brewery, has become a mainstay within us, the first minority-owned brewery in the city of Cincinnati. Other buildings that have changed, just even down the street. I always like to say this is, I don't know if you can see this well, you'll see in a little bit, but this, these were vacant buildings that were fixed up. Um, do you see where the, the lot is right here, where the fence is, which is between the barbecue place and the really hip but always changing bar that was a video bar, now it's a tiki bar, I have no idea. But in that little space right there, the original building of the Graders was there. Graders started right down here on McMillan. They tried to save the building, but it had been sitting so vacant, it was disrepair. And because of that, they were like, okay, we're going to say it. And then Five Point Alley, which is just west, was a place where crime and drugs were, were dealt with frequency, but then they fixed it up, and now it's just like hipster central with all of these different things. The reason that I bring all of this up is that when we look at the issue of resources, friends, the allocation of that is usually done at the expense of people in the community. Oftentimes, it's linked with race, but at the same time, my home, my, my people, the Appalachians who were in impoverished Price Hill, it was the same thing, is that the poor whites face this too. So resources are allocated as people can make money in the city. The biggest lesson of that would be this blocks, blocks and blocks of the Kenyan bar development right near where FC Cincinnati Stadium is, but actually it's where Interstate 75 is. There were vibrant communities, predominantly African-American, that because they were deemed movable, they were all relocated, many to Walnut Hills, many to Evanston and Avondale, and all of their homes, their stores, everything was ripped down in the sake of urban renewal. And that's why in the African-American community, it's called urban removal. Okay, more systemic sin connected to resourcing. And then finally, we get to the topic of religion. When I talk about religion in the city, it's very easy to see that in the early years of the city, it was the churches, the religious institutions that dictated everything. In this community, um, the, the founder of this community, James Kemper, who had a log cabin, the first house in Cincinnati, existed, existed over off of Kemper Lane, just two blocks away from here. And you can go to Sharon Woods, and this log cabin exists right now. He was a preacher and was preaching out toward Columbia Tusculum and downtown and wanted a halfway place in which to live. Religion was massively influential. The bombed out church building on the corner, the Kemper family, this Cincinnati or Walnut Hills was the home of Presbyterianism because of the seminary in this. Churches existed. But here's the issue about this. If you look at all these beautiful buildings that existed, you're like, what happened to the church? That it used to be here, right? Everywhere. And now it's hard to find these vibrant church communities in the city. The reason why is because back then, this was the burbs. Back then, the prevailing culture was the same as the church. And they were able to grow and build massive buildings like this. Nobody building this sanctuary today. It just ain't happening, y'all. Nobody's going to build this. Why? Because the immense cost of it. Why couldn't they do it back then? Because everybody who lived here... 
It was monochromatic, the culture was singular, and everybody invested into it. But the reason when I talk about this, and we like to dump on the church, is that the religion of the city continues to shift. Because we always think of religion of the city as issues of faith, but understand is that people live in the city, even if they don't go to church, are massively religious. Because I would say that that's biblical, that we are people of religion, that we are people who are seeking something bigger than us, something to clarify. So sometimes that is faith community, sometimes it's church, oftentimes it's the religion of self, or the religion of politics, or the religion of pet causes that we have, or the religion of wealth that we solve through resources, religion of beauty and aesthetic, whether personally or creating beautiful things, the religion of youth, which the city is massive on right now, like this is the city of the young, or religion of health. And every time I see people running from Hyde Park into Eden Park here under things, I always think they're going to church because people are people of habit and religion. And again, this is a place where even if it is faith, even if it is God at the center of the religion, it doesn't mean then that some of those systems haven't been infected with sin and have gone awry. I didn't include the, the picture but there's a condominium complex just three blocks up here on Madison Road. And it used to be a church building. I tried to look at buying it, friends, but yeah, at first they were like, we want $3 million for this. And I laughed and walked out. It sold at auction for less than $200,000. And they tore it all down but the sanctuary, the steeple, and made condos out of it. And part of me is like, oh, it's so sad that that was a church building. But one of the interesting things is if you read and study on what used to be Seventh Presbyterian Church, they actually influenced City Hall to change street directions. There are so many. Kaylin's got a friend that we drop off from soccer that lives on that street. And it always drives me crazy because I have to do a huge loop. And the reason they designed it like that specifically is because they didn't want outsiders, outsiders to drive down their street. And you can find the record. You know who really petitioned City Hall to make sure that the streets were safe? Was the church. So what I want us to see is there are systems of sin that exist in the city. And I think we all would see this, right? There are systems, and maybe they're not systems of sin. Let me, this is provide grace to me. Let me try a second chance at that. There are systems that have been infected with sin. So it doesn't mean that they're necessarily sinful, right? And this is when we're trying to untangle all of the cords and trying to figure out what it looks like for Christ to be above everything. Because it doesn't then mean that we can take the sins out of systems of race or of, of resources or religion and they can't find redemption through Jesus. So this gets to you and me. What does it then mean for us to be the church in the city? What does it mean for Echo? What does it mean to you if you're part of Echo to be part of church in the city? And there's always this phrase that I've heard connected to urban ministry, and it's not necessarily fully connected to this, but I think it's important to put out, is to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comforted too, right? Like that needs to be the job. Like what we need to do is be a place of hope for people who need hope, but at the same time, some of us need the swift Holy Spirit kick in the can to change ourselves so that we become better. And from afar, I love this, but the problem is that this might be a nice little aphorism, a nice axiom, a phrase that we throw out there, but the further we get into it, at some point, don't the afflicted become the comforted? 
Like, if we're looking at the development, what does this look like? This is the quandary of the city. Because people who are like, this is what the Bible teaches, and the Bible's a book of love, and I need to tell this message of love and shove it down their throat, even if they don't want to swallow it. But at the same time, there are people who are like, no, the Bible and Christianity is a message of love, and we just need to be nice to everyone so that when they come in, they feel good and happy. And the reality is, it's somewhere in the middle of that. Some days I wake up, I'm the best version of Steve you can imagine, and some days I'm the a-hole that needs Jesus more than anybody else. And what you and I need to figure out then is how to live in the midst of the tension of this. The idea of the church trying to minister in the city is this idea of missiology. Okay, and, you know, we just throw ology on anything, it becomes a thing. Missiology basically is how the church spreads the gospel. That's a, that's a churchy word, right? The gospel, the good news about Jesus, right? How do we then spread the good news about Jesus? And I'm going to tell you that the local controversy this week was really about this idea of missiology. This idea of what does it mean then for us to be the church in the city? And this is as specific I'll get, is that one of the things that we're seeing now in a multi-site church movement, where you can take one church and it's not local specific, it can go everywhere, is the problem is when you go everywhere, it's tough to have the same message for people who are living different things. It's tough when you're not localized. Because a person living in urban Cincinnati, downtown, or over the Rhine is going to see the world a little bit differently than my brother's family who live out in bright Indiana. It's a different way of life. And the problem is we think, I can use the same language, English, and I can use the same Bible, Jesus Bible, to be able to have the same conversations. But the problem is, is that what culture does is it forces us into conversations. It forces us into conversations that we don't want to have. The issue really is one about missiology. So how do we tell the message of Jesus? I really think there's two aspects of that. First, there is the message, and then there's the tone. And again, now this is where I notice I'm yelling just so you can hear me above the air conditioner. My tone is very intense, right? So stick with me as I, like, I am the man yelling, talking about you love. Just stick with me. Cut me some slack. We're going to land here. But first, the message of Jesus. This is important to who Echo is. So if we, I don't believe in really praying and thinking about this week that what we're about to show here is outside of the purveyance of what we have talked about, the purview, the purview, not the purveyance, outside the purview of who we are at Echo. But I think you need to know this. The message of Jesus, among all the many things, does include the idea that there is Jesus and Jesus helps with our sin. And that's three little words that is minuscule, but becomes so powerful. Not because of what it implies, but because how people wield that. Because often people talk about sin, and yet they're external about it. Sin is my leverage point to tell me who you aren't and who I am, and to distinguish between the two. That is not biblical. Sin, friends, is all of us. The problem is our fixation on individual sins and the consequences of which, which loses the narrative. Because as you read the scriptures, and this is again, you know, this is the Apostle Paul, who right now in cool progressive churches, it's hip to hate on the Apostle Paul even. And they're like, well, Paul was a misogynist and I don't like Paul. Look, Paul was used by Jesus. So if you're going to deal with Jesus, you've got to deal with Paul. But the one thing that Paul comes through and he admits this in his writings is that all have sinned and fallen short. That is not a popular message. 
for me to say all have sinned. I say this to you who have a construct of faith, maybe, and maybe you don't have a construct of faith, and you're rejecting this right now, but an essential aspect of Christianity is not just that Jesus makes society better, but that Jesus ought to make me better too, that I need more than just me. That's a tough message, and I'm going to tell you, from ministering in the city and living and working in the city as a person of Jesus for now all but like seven years of my life, it never gets easier. It never gets easier. And you know who spoke about that? Spoiler alert, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Which is something that we don't like to grapple with, but we should. That the message of the cross, the good news of Jesus, the Bible, right? The scriptures. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. If you don't believe this, it's stupid. It is pedestrian or even worse, it's nonsensical. And reading the Reddit boards this week and people online talking about it, the biggest thing is I heard from people who are urbanites were just like, uh, church preaches things that are stupid, don't go to church, right? Like, that was their whole summation. And you know why? Because that is a fulfillment of what Paul is saying about this message. And then you're like, if you're a skeptic, you're like, yeah, but if you were going to make a message, wouldn't you say that it's stupid not to believe in it or whatever? Like, that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is like, look, even though this is the truth of all reality and existence, if they don't buy into it, they're going to see this as stupid and dumb and nonsensical. To those of us who are being saved, however, it's the power of God. Very likely, the reason that you're in this room right now, why you're listening to this online, is because this message changed you somehow. Or you're pursuing it out of an idea that there is something here that is going to change who you are. For those of us who believe, it's the most amazing thing ever. And that is why churches do their best to talk about it, right? This is what they're trying to do is say, we want to tell you about the power of God. Even though you think it's garbage, we want to tell you about this. Now, let me get incredibly simple as far as we are at the church. Why is it the power of God? Because of two different aspects. This is Steve Theologian hat. He's putting it on and wearing it with pride. And I'm looking at it now. It looks bigger when I'm doing it on my computer, so it might look small. So I will read for those of you in the back. But on a spectrum of holiness and sinfulness, right? If I'm talking 100% holiness and through the scriptures, there's only one person who reaches that. That's God. God is the holy being. There's a big chasm just because once we sin, that's what Christian theology teaches. Once we sin, hey, we're, we're not in the gods here. We're with the rest of the plebes, right? All of us here. The reason we want Jesus is to solve our sin issue, is to solve that, right? So when we believe Jesus, man, my choices were horrible, Kelly. I'm so sorry. It says up here justified. That's that term justification. You know, when I used to teach it to the kids in the Sunday school, it was it's just as if I'd never sinned. The big thing about that is we're not fixated usually on that in these conversations. This for me is the step one most important conversation to be had. Unless somebody wants to say, hey, let me question all the stupidity of Christianity. I, I'm like, okay, let me talk about this first. Because if you reject me here, then why are we talking? Then you just want to critique me for who I am. If you can't believe this idea that I am naive enough to believe that the Bible stuff happened, that Jesus is real, and of the many things the gospel solves, it is my inadequacy, then 
my conversation is pointless. But where everybody wants to work is on the second aspect, the sanctification. What is sanctification? It's the process by which we become saints, right? I'm not talking about Catholic church saints where you have to do miracles and do it. As believers, we're all saints. This is why I love the dichotomy of what it means to follow Jesus. We're saints and we're sinners all at the same time. Have you been to my house yet? Some of you have. But when you come back post-pandemic, my, now my, my uh, what, what is it called? Our, our dining room. Have a big table, and I love it. Because in one, on, on one side, there are, there are stained glass windows from the church where I grew up in and a pulpit from the old church that I swiped when I was leaving. Judge my ethics later, Melissa. I don't care. Like, I took that pulpit, but they were going to sell it to somebody. I value it, right? On the other side is a bourbon barrel in my bourbon collection, right? I call it my sinners and saints room. And you know where I sit? You know which chair I sit in there? In every single one, because it's who I am. I'm a sinner, I'm a saint. And there's a 90s song within that, I'm not even going to touch on this. But here's the issue. Everybody wants to argue about sanctification. We want to get into, what is the sin, what is this? And I'm going to be honest with you, I have no interest in that conversation. Because if you're at the point, when you're at the point of trying to become a saint, and you're going through this, then we'll have this talk. But even if you know what it is, or even if you disagree with what I think it is, your journey is still, the journey of sanctification isn't justification. At justification, we're like, Jesus got this taken care of. Sanctification, I'm going to screw up the path. This doesn't mean that we earn our way up there. That's Jesus. Jesus is, all your sins are gone. But for some reason, I want to entertain conversations with other people about what is sin, what is sinfulness, how it works itself out. So again, I have been accused by people then of being a wuss, of being somebody who doesn't want to have that because I don't want to have the hard conversations. No, the issue is, is that I have in my life encountered hundreds, if not thousands of Christians whose conversations on sin deviate to the point that it is just not worth the conversation to me. I don't care because I believe it's extracurricular. So stick with me on this. Can I get really personal here? There are people who believe, and by the way, I'm going to preface it with this. There are people who I love, who I respect, and with whom I think I will spend eternity with, who believe that my wife is sinning because she is the lead pastor of the church. There are people who believe that we then, and then my role as being an elder of this, are culpable of that same sin, and that sin pervades us because she is the leader of this church. In the last year or so since this has happened, I've had to resign from two different boards where I serve with people because they're like, you know your wife's a pastor. And I'm like, this I know. And they're hemming and hawing around the conversation. And they're ready for me to fight. And I was like, do you need me to step down? And they're like, that would help us. I'm like, okay. Because number one, I'm like, that's more free time for me. And I'm thinking about starting up knitting because I can fill my time. But the bigger thing is, I don't have the patience to talk with other people who don't care about who she is, or our, our mission field, or this, to have an in-depth conversation about that. And you know how much sleep I lose about it? Zero. But can I tell you what I do? I keep fellowshipping with those people. 
part of it is because nobody has the gumption anymore just to kick me out. They're like, well, your wife's a pastor. And, I, you know, if I show up, nobody wants to be like, should we kick? Nobody wants to kick me out. So, yes, in a way, I make it awkward for them. Right? I want to be there because I want to be like, look, I might not agree with your view of sin. But on the big thing on Jesus, we're here. You're going to have to figure that out in your brain. Because I want to make it awkward for them. And there are going to be aspects of this that as you read the scriptures, as I read the scriptures, you're going to find different parts where this becomes major and will want to make deal. I'm telling you, unless we're at this point, unless we're at like this is the bigger picture, I don't want to have the conversation. I don't care. Because I'm still commanded as a person of faith to exhibit the love of Christ to every human being I am. Now the question is, when I find people who I disagree with, how they say sin, how do I treat them? Because part of this might be like, I have academic credentials. I'm an ordained minister. I should be able to pull out the, you know, the, what is it? Like the, the baseball bat of justice and righteousness and go to town, right? But, you know, even though Jesus cleared the temple, he did it one time. So I'm not trying to say the totality of what Jesus is, is taking a baseball bat to tables, a lot of what he did, <laughs> if I'm going to emphasize that, he also at the same time stretched his hands out and died even though he did nothing wrong. It's this idea, friends, what does it mean for us to live? Okay, this might be helpful. I'm doing way more. I seriously teach whole seminary classes on this. Let me move to the most important thing then, what we're getting to, the tone, the tone of this. The tone, friends, is what's most important, right? And if I lead with sinfulness, if I'm like, well, this is sinfulness, that's ridiculous in this modern vernacular. It doesn't mean then that I disavow the idea of sin, but friends, the pervasiveness of this and the way that it affects institutions, massive. I want to focus on insufficiency. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of truth. That is the message of scriptures that transcends any, anything that one might believe. Our you enough to stand before God? Now the answer is, maybe this is a surprise to you, the answer is no. None of us on our own volition are enough to stand before God to be holy in front of holy God. And that is what Jesus is for you and me. Jesus, friends, solves our issue of insufficiency. And I will tell you, that's the irony of the city. So we need to talk urbanites one last time. The thing about urbanites is that they are some of the most individual determined people you will ever meet. And this is not to say if you live in the burbs or you grew up on a farm, that's not bad. But quite often when people get in the city, they start opening up cans of whoop, right? And they go to town. Why? Because it's a place where ambition and desire can be driven. The irony is that when you move to the city, you have the opportunity to advance, but you're not sufficient, like, everybody is just like, I live in the city, you know, I'm bad, you know, like, I've got my life figured out. No, you don't. You are living in complete sufficiency to other people. You need other people to live. Whether it is, you know, the condo person who, who clears the snow off your driveway to the one who clears, you know, the city worker who drives a snowplow on your street. Whether it's, and this is something I determined this year, my sewage and trying to get my poo out of the house into the sewage system, right? Like there's all these things, and maybe that was overtly descriptive. But it's this idea that 
as an urbanite, you are not sufficient, and yet you fool yourself thinking that you are the most sufficient person on the face of the earth. And the reality is, is that what Jesus says is that you are not enough, and I don't judge you for that. In fact, I open up my arms of love and embrace you. That, friends, that is a tone. That is a message of hope. Coming back to Paul on this, as we look at this message of hope in Colossians chapter 1, 23, you continue in your faith, established and firm. Don't move from the hope. Notice that it says, don't move from your specified doctrine. It doesn't say that. It says, don't move from the hope. There will always be, whether well-intentioned or poor, people in your lives who want to rob the hope of Jesus from you. Do not let them, do not be concerned with that because that is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel one is that it's hope. It is the hope for something more. It's the hope for something more. And that's why I put the message of Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. And maybe that's that afflicted, comforted, comforted, afflicted thing. Sometimes I'm the one who is most hopeful. Sometimes I feel hopeless, but I'm telling you, friends, Jesus Jesus delivers hope for us. Jesus delivers hope for the city. And I have hope for the city. And I hope for the churches in the city. Even when they do things that isn't in my lane. Because I'm going to give people at least a little thing. Hey, you tried. But all we can do is affect how we live this out. When Kelly and I went to move to the city, they had this going away party at our suburban church. And everybody's coming up and they're like, oh, we loved you. And you know, no, they didn't really. No, they liked us. They liked us a lot. You can come up, Kelly. I know you want to come up. So just come up. No, go ahead. Come up. Just come up. Grab the microphone. Come up. It's your, you're the lead pastor. We're all bathing in your sin right now. Come up here and come up on stage. This is, your, this is your gig. You and I had a going away party, and you, you saw the guy talking to me, but you didn't know what the guy said to me, right? Do you remember what the guy said to me? Oh, whoop. He said, you're moving to the city. I would rather go to Africa than move downtown Cincinnati. Yeah. Which and I then don't he know what's added, wrong with Africa. Then he added his spiritual solution to the city was if they bombed everything and paved it over, then it would be fixed. And I was like, thanks, I'm moving my pregnant wife down there. Like, that's good stuff. And here's the aspect is that you can neither worship the city nor condemn it. You have to live in the intention of this because that's what it means to be followers of Jesus. So I will tell you that this church exists because of that hope. Has it been easy? No. Have we had people leave because they're like, we don't jive into your thing of hope? Yes, but we're still going to, thick or thin, elevate Jesus above all. And that's why I want to show you guys the verse that we have together incarnated within our lives. We've hit this last verse for me, Dylan, and thank you. Small print, I will read it. But this is Jeremiah 31. And if you remember Jeremiah, this is the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God's people were thrown into exile. They didn't move there selectively. God said, you've done all sorts of bad things. You have sinned. You need to be punished to figure out what this means. So he allowed them to be exiled 
hundreds of miles away from their home. And this is what he then said to the people. When you are in exile, this is how you should live. Is that you should build houses and settle down there. That you'll plant gardens and eat what it produces there. Have your kids marry, have son and daughters, right? And marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Don't decrease. Okay, why is he telling us? He's saying, it's like, look, you might be a stranger in the strange land, but plant your roots. And even when you're going to be there, you will never be Babylonian. Right? You will never be Babylonian. And as followers of Jesus, we will never be fully accepted for where we're at. But that doesn't mean the next thing. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. That's who we are. So we will seek peace. And then we will pray for the prosperity of what happens here. Because it's important because this is a place that is magnificent but needs Jesus desperately. So we'll preach the message, we'll find the tone, we'll make it happen. And so we want to we wanna grapple with all this personally. Like every week, that's why we have communion every week is just to have this, to have this, to, be, to stop and look and say, have I been seeking the peace? Have I been active? Have I been bringing Jesus and his hope to the city this week? In my life, in my family, with my neighbors, in this world? And it's just, it's just a reminder that I, I have hope. Have I been offering that hope to others? So we take communion every week so that we, we don't forget so we do remember that we have a hope. And, and as much as the week can bring us down, that we can take this moment to take bread and to take juice into our bodies, to breathe in Jesus and to remember he knows we're not enough. He wants to be everything for us. He wants to give us hope for today and tomorrow and the next day. So we're going to have a time of communion now and... Yeah, let's take in Jesus, let's remember our hope, and let's ask him for the strength to get through the rest of today and whatever comes this week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together as a people right here in the city. Thank you for Cincinnati. Thank you for the fact that we all got to meet because we live here. Thank you for caring about every one of us and for those outside these walls. Help us take your hope to them this week. We thank you for your sacrifice, for your love for us. Amen.